Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest and longtime friend, Joe Marchese. Joe is a founder at Attention Capital and previously was an exec at Fox and founder at Truex. Joe, w- welcome to the podcast. Hey, good to be here. So Joe, by way of introduction, why don't you talk about the, the first company you started and, and why you started it and what it set out to do? And then we'll get into Fox and, and Attention Capital. So, the, so funny, the, the first company I started was a company called Social Vibe. And the idea, and this is it's weird dating myself with, with MySpace, but uh, here we go. Like The <laughs> idea was basically that like if people were publishing their own web pages on MySpace, how come people couldn't be uh, the, uh, the beneficiaries of the advertising on the pages? And so, you know, at the first, what we did was we actually had people post a badge to their page and they would earn points for the charity of their choice. So basically turning ad dollars into charity dollars. And like, I mean, it was, we had these pink balls and I mean, it was, I mean, literally we were packing pink balls into boxes and sending them to people on MySpace, and, and it was influencers. I would, I don't want to say influencers before they were influencers. Cause I think there's just always been, but that was it. And it was super fun. And then that, that kind of evolved into, you know, when the games hit, hit Facebook and Farmville and you could earn points by engaging with that. But the whole idea was like choice-based advertising. And then this just became a thread for your career. And it was actually kind of the basis for Truex after. Oop, you're muted on my end. <laughs> if we don't, if we don't do at least one, hey, you're on mute during d- during every Zoom, then I then is it really a pandemic? Exactly. Uh, it, it, talk about the thesis behind behind Jurex. Jurex kind of took that that and applied it to kind of premium content, which was why why shouldn't why shouldn't if if ad, if the future of media was on demand and interactive, why couldn't the advertising be on demand? Why does advertising always have to interrupt what you're doing? Couldn't I engage with my ads at one point and then watch my content later rather than watch it and have commercial breaks in between? And so we kind of took all the tech and applied it to this this kind of simple idea, which is opt-in advertising would be more effective for people and more effective for advertisers and just applied it to the television kind of ecosystem writ large. Yeah, that was that was what Truex was and is. And actually, that's what got bought by 21st Century Fox. And then you spent a few years at, at, at Fox. What did you achieve there? What was your goal to, to achieve there? You know, it's, uh, at first it was, you know, to figure out what advanced advertising is. And I don't, I still don't know what advanced advertising is. I guess it's, I guess it's everything that sucks less than current advertising. And, and I, I really focus in on, can it be fair? Can advertising be fair to the viewer? Like everyone thinks that like advertising subsidizes the content you want. So whatever they want to do is fine. And I, 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 I take exception. And I actually think that if you, really took an ad company that was focused on the people who were looking at the ads, you would actually end up doing something that was better for the publishers of content in the long run, right? Like a modern revenue organization, my argument has always been a modern revenue organization's job isn't to maximize the amount of, of revenue they make. It's to maximize revenue while least harming the viewer experience. And if you're really good, you can actually make it additive to the viewer experience, right? Wasn't that like Google search ads were actually additive? And so at the beginning, I was focused on advanced advertising. And then, you know, eventually I was kind of overseeing all advertising for National Geographic and FX and Fox Sports. So things like the Super Bowl and, and the World Series and broadcast, which is like the Simpsons. And, and I got to tell you, like, you know, people outside of tech throw stones at 
know, quote unquote, traditional media uh, saying that, you know, oh, it's so backwards and TV advertising is terrible. And, and I, you know, I'm the first to admit, even when I was running it, that it is not a great user experience. But there's a reason why there's a marketplace. There's a reason why it exists the way it does. And people don't understand it until they've actually been in it. And so people were surprised when I stayed as long. And, and I got to tell you, like, you know, the number of startups that are running multiple billions of dollars worth of revenue and highly profitable is very low, as, as you and I know. And so to run something like that was was absolutely a chance of a lifetime. So did that for a couple of years. And then as some of some people out there know, Fox and Disney had a had a giant transaction. And I kind of took that as time to get back into starting things. The, and, and before we get into essential capital, what don't they appreciate for, from not being in, in, like pull that thread a little bit? What they don't appreciate is that TV advertising works. It just doesn't work like like the way people see it. So what I mean by that is, like you know, if car company X spends a hundred million dollars in total with this with the TV network, in total that hundred million dollars is effective. Not every one of the ads. I don't need to see the ad forty times. And yes, you show it to people who don't necessarily need to see the ad. But you know, this is one of the the big myths that that the internet has fooled people about, which is. You just want to target just the people who buy your product at just the right time. And that's when you send advertising to people. And that's not true. Like, like if, if something's built Ford tough and only people who drive Fords know that, then what difference does it make? You need to, you need to advertise to the brother and sister and family of the person who drives a Ford. You need to, you need to, you need to advertise to people who drive cars besides Ford. Like that brands have social currency because literally society knows, knows what they mean. Right. And, yeah. The idea that it's all waste and that this is all like is actually wrong. And it is one of the things that's really hurting the industry is we fight over the wrong things. We fight over a price of a CPM and it's, it's so hard to measure output. I think, you know, this is one of the subjects I know, you know we, we kind of went back and forth a little bit on, but what's killing the advertising industry, a lot of things, but the, one of the biggest ones is this lie of, of perfect attribution. Like, oh, I can measure exactly how hard my advertising dollars are working. You can measure exactly how hard they're working, maybe on the first thousand customers. But when you want to build a brand and talk, you know, I want millions of customers and you want to bring your customer acquisition costs down over time, the only thing that reduces CAC over time is a brand. And building brands is different than performance advertising. It just, it just is. And there's just so many factors that go into it. Was the creative good? Was the is the product good? Kind of important whether or not the product sucks or doesn't. Like, is what's going on in the macro economy? I mean, I used to joke. I didn't understand how people say, "Oh, you know, if you work with me, I can help you get ROI." Car company X, and then, well, what if car company X's competitor starts giving away cars for free? Like, is your ROI is going to suffer? Does that mean you did it? Like, what what happens? If the car company X's brakes don't work, I have a feeling that the advertising isn't really going to help at that point. So I think that there's, but, but it's a very easy and intellectually lazy argument just to say, oh, well, we can measure everything. And so, and people like, since they're very uncomfortable and everyone in tech is very uncomfortable with anything being even in part art, they're uncomfortable with the art part of advertising. So yeah. they just kind of overlean. And I think we've overswung as an industry towards that side, towards data. So, so is the lie both the impossibility of it, but also the that it's not a, a worthy goal? Yeah, I think it's 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 actually exactly right. Those are the two sides. One is it's not perfect. Like on what time horizon? I see it. I see an ad for a McRib today, and six months later, I go buy one. Like how how do we know? Also, like fourteen other things happened to me that day. How are you isolating for which thing led to led to the conversion later? And 
you have, I mean, the tricks that happen in advertising, cookie bombing and, and trying to spoof attribution. And like, there's just so much of it. Like, I mean, if you work with most ad performance companies and some of the very big ones that we all know, we'll go on name, but like, they'll always show you an ROI report that works. And yet you'll see your sales decreasing. And even if you don't see your sales decreasing, you see your margin decreasing. And if your margin decreases, you become a commodity. If you become a commodity, you're just going to keep reacquiring your customers through the platform. So that leads to part two. That's not the goal, right? It's a really hard thing to do because you know, famously CMOs 10 years isn't that long. So, or it's not when like things aren't going well. And so it's hard to have the kind of fortitude you'd need to say, no, no, we're taking a long view on building a brand and what it means to build a brand. But you see it when you see a lot of these D2C companies, they reach a certain scale. And then all of a sudden you see billboards and out of home. And I mean, I'm on the board of Clear Channel for a reason. Like I'm not I'm not trying to work my way back to the oldest form of advertising <laughs> possible there. I don't think there's a smoke signal advertising company out there. But if there was, I'd be interested in it because <laughs> like, it may be inaccurate, but it's very hard to fake. Right. Yeah. That it works. Right. And it feels like attention capital is a lot of the culmination of, of your of your experiences, or at least you, you've kept pulling this thread, right? So, so talk about what, what is attention capital, and then contextualize it in your career in terms of what's the thread you, you've kept on pulling. Well, I think there's there was what attention capital was going to be pre-COVID, and then there's kind of what I'm using it for now, which I'm, I'm sure is kind of common. And actually, I've kind of taken a second to say, I think, I think take a break and say, you know, Originally, and the thesis still holds that the attention economy is kind of what the entire U.S. economy or global economy is based on, meaning the things that we give reputation to or what we spend our money on, like how we make choices on cars and movies to watch and what we do with our attention actually shapes everything else like that. That was that's just that's just a universal thing. And so I spend a lot more time now with attention uh, in advisory work while I wait and kind of think like, where do I think is the most interesting threads post? And, and, and as you know, there's, there's two sides to this coin, which is, you know, after I sold my company, after I sold Truex to Fox, I founded uh, human ventures with Heather Hartnett and human was this incarnation of like the, the superpower behind all great companies is the people. And this is kind of very part and parcel of what I was saying about art versus science and that success is like, you know, where humans spend their time and attention and, and what you can demand of others. And so that was the early, early stage. And attention was looking at, well, later stage, like people are trying to understand the attention economy or they're mispriced because they have high value attention, but they're not valued properly is a really interesting space. And then, you know, in a COVID world, it was kind of a full stop and say, well, what, what do we think will be very interesting post COVID? And, and so I'm, I'm still just kind of feeling that out right now. Yeah, I, I, we're going to dive into that but, but a, a few points from, from what you mentioned. One is in a previous podcast, you mentioned something uh, with Digiday, you mentioned something along the lines of, you know, we've, we've tended to overvalue what we can measure. Uh, and so mm -hmm. by extension, what can't be measured gets undervalued. And that goes yep. speaks to your art and science point. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, I think that's it, 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 that's absolutely right. Like, it's very hard to measure if someone goes to an event and it's experiential. We all know it. You know, you know, it's really sad that we're not going to South by or CES. And like, you know, everyone can everyone can make fun of me. Thank God we're not in Vegas right now. Or thank God, oh man, what a crush. But come on, how much of our careers and our connections and people we got to know, like, what what is a relationship worth? I mean, I don't know how to put a price on it. Like, you know, maybe maybe Salesforce and Slack can figure it out once they're together. But but like that built our careers and your networks on these things and and they're very hard to value and so if they're hard to value people just kind of throw away and say i'll pay for what i can measure and so i believe that there's a whole class of things out there that are very hard to measure and they're undervalued in the market 
what's an example or something that that comes to mind to make it a bit concrete for people? Well, I mean, one of the first things uh, it partnered with uh, James's firm, who really led Loop of Ventures on, on Tribeca Film Festival, right? And Tribeca is one of these things where it's like, it's this brand that like people recognize, even if they don't know everything about it, people recognize the brand. And that has an intrinsic value. Jane Rosenthal, who's the CEO, like knows how to like put together an event and a show that like really moves culture. Like it was founded post 9-11 to bring people back to downtown New York. It's, you know, the stories that get told at a film festival resonate for decades. Like, you you know, you see a piece of art that gets created and 10 years later, someone becomes a, you know, a cancer research scientist because of something they saw. Tell me how you're going to measure that. Like, t- tell me how you're going to say, I'm going to show you the ROI of, of a film festival. Right. And that is, I mean, I, I mean, I love, 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 love that space. Like, you know, when National Geographic back at, at Fox, it was impossible to say, you know, the sponsors and brands who worked with uh, with National Geographic on on telling these great stories about the environment. How many kids did they inspire to go change a career? Right. Like, forget, like what the immediate ROI was like. Wh- like how do you form brand love? Like these things that are very hard to measure are just just constantly undervalued. And, and so I try to get involved as many as I can. I think one of the things you, you find, though, is. You can be right about it being undervalued, but if you can't figure out how to value it, you can't get it paid for in the same way. So, and I don't, I don't mind picking up that mantle as a challenge every now and then. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. We, we don't have ways of measuring real, like the depth of, of, of affinity or depth of loyalty or, um, yeah, it's very sort of binary or, or, or crude. Talk about stone soup and, and your, <laughs> uh, your, your theory of, of, of that. That's the real key for entrepreneurship. <laughs> Okay, so I was just and this is not to kill all the other business books out there. I hate to I hate to take away a lot of business from our friends, but I think the only book an entrepreneur needs to understand thoroughly if they want to be a great entrepreneur is the children's book Stone Soup, and that is because the children's book Stone Soup is told in a bunch of different um, cultures. But basically, an elder and a youngling walk into a, a town, and the elder says, "We're going to teach this town to make soup from a stone," and and everybody in the town laughs, and then. The person, you know, the, the elder finds the perfect stone and then builds the perfect fire. And, and slowly people start to get intrigued that like this, this guy can really build soup from a stone or make soup from a stone. And so someone pokes their head out and they go, can you really make soup from a stone? And, and the elder goes, yes, but it would be better if I just had a few carrots. And then the person goes, oh, well, I have some, the villager says, I have some carrots squared away. And then that happens with potatoes. And then that happens with onions and it happens with chicken. And, and for children at the end, everyone's eating and having a good time. It's the end of the book. And the children's lesson in the book is when we all work together, we all eat. And I would say that the entrepreneur's lesson is that motherfucker could not make soup from a stone. <laughs> but what they could do is they could paint a vision that got everyone to contribute their unique abilities to a singular vision, right? That's the fire. And so I think great entrepreneurs, uh, you know, you look at it, there's only two questions that any entrepreneur should have to answer, which is why now and why you, right? Why now what's changed in the world? Cause everyone has the same ideas. Anyone who says like, hold on, I don't want to tell you my idea because I don't want you to steal it. It's like, well, then you don't have an idea, <laughs> but like, you have to say, why now in the world is it time for this to exist? And then why are you the person to make it exist? And that second, the why you, I would always say the answer is because I can attract people with unique talent to this. I can attract people with unique financial resources to this. I can attract, you know, um, employees. I can attract business partners. Like that's like, so all entrepreneurship is stone soup and like throw and throw. And, and because you're never going to end up with whatever you put on that first pitch deck, it's going to change a million times. So you have to be able to see the vision and get people to contribute to it. And then at the end, everyone will eat. Yeah. I, I love that. that that's, that's an awesome metaphor. 
I, I want to talk about the attention economy uh, post-COVID, but first maybe let's do a little bit of just historical recap. One sort of thought experiment for you is if we were having this conversation in you know 2006 when, when you started Truex, I mean, you've really been you know pulling this thread for a couple of decades now, it seems. Let's say we had this conversation you know 15 years ago and we were speculating over what the ecosystem would look like in the ad ecosystem in, in 2020 or that ad industry, mm-hmm. ad tech. What would we have... Is this similar to what we might have predicted or if you were to sort of talk about like what's happened relative to expectations or how do we think about like the different phases that are major turning points in the industry? Like what yeah. comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think I think you would have predicted TVs fall a lot faster than it did. Right. And even even I, prior to actually getting a chance to work in television and see the other side, right, would have predicted it faster. Um, and what you realize is, again, brands aren't built that way. Right. Oh, like like data target, like human, the human brain doesn't work. That way. Like we're not we're not comfortable with the fact that the human brain, we still don't actually understand how we have ideas and thoughts and and how we shape these things. So so that is one that you would have gotten wrong. And ever a lot of people did at the time. You know, the rise of performance marketing, but a whole new class of advertisers, so affiliate advertising. So what used to be called DR on TV, that just got that last little bit that wasn't willing to be paid for by the Fortune 50 or the, the you know the biggest of the big. In digital, that's, you know, that's actually the, that is the 80, that is the 80-20, right? Like, like the, you know, Wish.com going public, you know, sometime coming up here, it's, it looks like. These companies that there aren't building a brand you know, this is the of a lot of interest to me, and this affects the advertising and how you would have had predictions. Is you would have always said that okay, there's there's brands and there's retailers, and retailers are basically a house of brands, right? Walmart and, and everyday low prices, the value proposition to consumers is we're going to curate the best that's available, then we're going to make that available to you. Then open marketplace says, oh, don't worry about that, we're not going to curate; it'll be an open marketplace. But I think just before COVID, you started to see that open marketplaces don't always advantage the consumers. Like why wire cutter exists, right? Like, like you don't go to the front page of Amazon to go shopping. You go to the front page with an intent, right? Um, and so I think you wouldn't have predicted that there's a whole class of advertisers that are actually going to take up a large part of the digital market, a large part of mobile, a large part of performance, a large part of like social is affiliate marketers rather than brand marketers. And that is why you haven't seen television really pull back or billboards. I mean, I love out of home because for, for as, in, uh, as, as hard to measure as it is, it is so present, literally present IRL. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think you would have, you would have missed that those didn't decline as fast. I think you would have expected to see smarter advertising in traditional places like TV getting, getting more targeted out of home billboards becoming, you know, the minority report version of out of home billboards where, you know, they recognize that you're walking by and they, they say something to you. So that's that's interesting. But then I think because of those two market distortions, the rise of a whole new class of advertisers soaking up all that excess inventory. Um, I think you would have never predicted as much fraud as it probably exists out there today. Like I think the open web barely exists anymore. Right. I mean, how many websites do you go to a day that have advertisements on it that aren't a part of the big you know, call them the big 50, like the New York Times or ESPN or something like that, or be part of a walled garden, Facebook, Instagram. So then if I say the rest is open web, how much do you think is left out there? Probably not much, but I would guarantee you there's billions of dollars trading in impressions on that market. So that's a, that's a bizarre one to me. Still can't well, figure that one out. <laughs> and the, um, how about just add tech from like a, you know, v- venture perspective 
I'm sure you know you've gotten hit up over the you know, decade plus over all these ad tech startups, you know, asking you to invest or for for advice. Like, how has it performed relative to expectations, or or just how you sort of approach that that space? Yeah, um, I, I tell people never take my advice in ad tech, and actually, I would I would say most people shouldn't take advice from people who are too jaded by because I because it's too easy to see everything that can go wrong, right? It's too easy to see how stone soup is going to spoil, right? Because I know everything, and like and and I've given people advice. I've said this could make a lot of money. I don't think it adds value. And I think that there's a lot of ad tech out there that can make money for someone. Cause it's, it is, it is eerie how similar some ad tech, I would even say a lot of ad tech is to flash boys. If you've read the, the Michael Lewis book, right? Front trading, like an impression getting passed 14 times before it finally gets delivered. And like each person took a penny out, right? Like what's going, like there's something really weird. And so my, my biggest, my first point is I'm short, in the long term, if that's such a thing, I don't know. I'm good thing I don't actually trade stocks, but I'd be short in the long term. But like, I just think that there's there's probably is a lot of money to be made right now because it's something feels off. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let's talk about well, if we're having this game conversation ten years from now, which I, which I, ho- I hope to be doing, how might it be different? Or like, what what, what would you expect? Is it sort of accelerating the things you, you you mentioned, or any other sort of major shifts or turning points you'd expect? Right now? I don't think that the market's going to correct slowly. I think it'll, I think there'll be a crack. There'll be a break where, where like we're, we're pricing, we're only pricing things that we know how to price, like, like impressions, like, but not all impressions are the same. I think it'd be silly if I told you that all impressions are just impressions and then we, we quality score them. I think at some point we'll realize that I do think that the amount of inventory inventory, and I, I hate calling it that because really it's people's attention. The amount of, the amount of real time people are spending in environments where there are ads is decreasing Netflix, Hulu ad free HBO. Right. And in the place where they do spend, where there are ads, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram is, but, but most of those advertisements, for one, it's, it's a, it's a small fraction of your total time spent there. Whereas it was seven minutes an hour in television. So the total amount of time people are spending with ads is decreasing. And yet the total number of ads people are seeing is being counted as going up. Right. So how long can that continue before there's some sort of reset? Someone will figure that out and someone will make a lot of money figuring out what that what that reset is. I'm happy to advise one of those or invest in one of those, but I am done with the trying to fight the good fight. Yeah. And and you're done because combination of of, of you, you jadedness or or you think the big opportunity elsewhere or just hard to do or um, I think there's a bigger opportunity elsewhere. I'm much, I'm, I'm so interested in, in, you know, and we'll get to this, I know, but the, like in post COVID, like people gathering again, local experiential is going to be massive. The creator economy is, is changing rapidly right now. Cause they're in multiple, they're all world gardens, but they're multiple yeah. world gardens, right? The tools are existing. I also think that, you know, it can be difficult to make an honest dollar in ad tech, right? Like you, if you don't, if you're not willing to play the game, if you're not willing to like, you know, look the other way on traffic acquisition and oh, audience extension and these things, it's, it's like, you know, I don't want to tell some founder, no, no, don't do that because you know, you want to be the white knight in the industry and then, and then, but then they can't make a living. Right. And yeah. so that's, that's tough. And, and you'd love to be there when the, when everything corrects, but you know, w- what do they say all the time that, um, being early is, is worse than being wrong sometimes because then you're even more frustrated because you knew you were right. So. Yeah. I, I like the point you made in, in another podcast as well, where you said, just talk about attention economy business models. You mentioned it used to be, you made so much money, uh, you made money, uh, you know, trying to take everyone's attention. 
um, or, or based on how much attention you could take. And now it's how much attention you could save. And something like the skim as, as yes. an example yeah. of somebody that yeah. says, hey, we'll, we'll save you a bunch of time. Just read us. We'll tell you everything you need to know. Yeah, I think there's a whole and there's a class of businesses right now that are saying uh, and I, this is this is universal truth. This was true, you know, before before we got to the current state, it'll be true later. Like time is our only finite position. And I think I think time is equated to your attention and, and someone and I blanking right now because I just heard it recently. Um, might have been someone talking to Galloway, but but it talks about attention and time are actually synced. You can't multitask like there, there's a chart that comes out every year that like, well, there's 31 hours in a day because people have two screens open. And that's what no, they just want to say that that's why there's that's why they can double and triple count like that, because otherwise the impression numbers make make no sense. And so people are looking for things that save them time and 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 enhance the experience of their lives, meaning Uber. Uber is a time saver. You wouldn't think of that as an attention economy thing, but like, hey, I can I can reduce my my stress of where to park and all these. Things. There is so much more that goes into that, and the skim is a, is a perfect example. And so, a lot of social media is trying to maximize the time you spend with them so that they can then turn that into something. And then consumers are going the other way. And like I mentioned, wire cutter before, and what's going to save me time but maximize what the experience will be on the outset. And 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 I do think that's actually why I'm kind of bullish long run on things like Walmart, right? Like they're a retailer, meaning I'm going to guarantee you that I've spent the time to check this and it's not it's not necessarily an open marketplace. And that there's this kind of evolution of delivering value as experience and time back. That's that's a big, big opportunity. Just on the Walmart thread, talk about the future of sort of you know platforms versus retailers versus brands. Just the future of, of commerce, you know, whether it's brand or, or commodity or how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think that was, you know, I think that there's all open marketplaces optimize for percent margin. And that's really, really important uh, because if I make something for $10 and sell it for $12, humans are like, oh, $2, that's 20% margin. That's great, right? $2. But if I make something for $0.02 cents and I sell it for $0.03, cents, right? you're saying that's a penny. Oh, my God, I'm not going to do that. I, that's That's no money. But a computer is like, that is amazing. Do that a trillion times. That's 50%, right? Like that, like that's a much better margin than the 20%. And so open marketplaces always tend towards percent margin because that percent margin can then get put back into marketing promotion. It doesn't matter whether it's good or not, right? It doesn't matter whether it's value or not. And the platform doesn't take responsibility for the product in the way a retailer might. And so I think you're seeing a whole class of these. And Walmart's obviously gigantic, so it's just the biggest example. But you could go down to you see these curators of products kind of emerging that are acting as retailers, almost meaning stamp of approval on what this what this product is, saving you time from having to go navigate around. And this is this is not just true for physical products. I think guides to guides to travel, guides to food, guides to entertainment like what's worth your time is a big category. And this is kind of the new retailer. And that's, that's the value proposition. Yeah. That's awesome. Let's talk about post COVID. I, I know there's a few themes. Some of them are sort of returning to, you know, back to what it was like, like local, for example, and we'll get into it. But first let's just talk about where do you see COVID in a post COVID world as being fundamentally different than, than a pre COVID world? Like what, 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 where have we changed the game? I'm hesitant on this one because I think, and not not 
not meaning a bad pun, but I think we're getting a lot of false positives, right, in terms of work from home or work remote and so forth, because a lot of people who are working together had worked together in person prior, right? There was, you know, so much that went into people and in collisions. I mean, you know, uh, rest in peace, Tony Shea, one of the better humans like in our industry and one of the better humans just period. And he talked to tons. I mean, he basically designed the, the layout of Zappos so people would have collisions and talk to each other yeah. and connect. Because back to you can't measure everything. Like like the ROI on human relationships is is just it's immeasurable. So I think more comes back than we think. Now I don't think it comes back. Let's say it's coming back to work 100% like we did before, sitting behind a desk nine to five. Probably not, right? It was not really that in a lot yeah. of places anyway. Um, but is it 80% back? I think. I mean, I, I think I think it's more back than I think it's more back than than we're currently kind of living with. I do think that there's been an acceleration towards people learning. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time um, with the founder and CEO and helped him co-found a company called Reserve, which is restaurant reservations. And you know, we wanted people just to walk away from the table like you walk away from an Uber. But, but it was just easy enough to take a credit card and walk over. Now you can't sit down at a restaurant without a QR code. So everyone's got their – so like there's almost like this – I think it was Alexia um, um, from Dream Machine who kind of said it. There's almost like a stimulus for users because like people will try your product right now. Yeah. Um, so things that were obvious pre-COVID, because I don't want to use the overused, but very true. This was an accelerant of current trends. But yeah. let's, let's let's put it a different way. It was obvious pre-COVID that there was a better way than handing your waiter a credit card and someone walking away. And why can't I have this stored? And why is why why don't you know what I'm needing? That was obvious, but it was very hard to fix because the way things were done were good enough. Right. It was obvious pre-COVID that retail was going to change and it would retail was going to have to become experiential. But now COVID's like said, great, reset it. Let me give you my my favorite example, because you have to look for uh, silver linings, especially when you live in New York City, where it was really rough in the first bit. But if you remember pre-COVID in New York City, the L train, which is the train that goes from Brooklyn to Manhattan, was going to shut down. And there wasn't anyone in the city who wasn't like, this is going to be the end of the world. I don't know how we're going to get by like the L, the L, L train apocalypse, but we had a pandemic, the L trains fixed. No one even noticed it. So, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, if you don't figure out what are the things like, what are the infrastructure work that could be done now that could not have been done before? What is that for your startups? What is that for products? I mean, that, and what is that for retail? Like that's yeah. all interesting. Totally. Let, let, let's dive into a few examples. L let's talk about the future of local and where you're excited, where you're looking. So, so I think like if you define the future of local into two big buckets, right? One is SMB, right? Like barbers and restaurants and, you know, things that are no matter what on a post-COVID world, you still have to go back to. Like otherwise you can't, like, but you're going to have to load balance humans at this point, right? Like you're going to like scheduling the software is going to become bigger. And there were a lot out pre-COVID, but post-COVID, kind of how you think about SMB at a local level. Like, I mean, what Shopify has done for e-commerce for small business, what is that for all local like like interactions with people? So SMB is one giant category of local. We could go down what restaurants, which I mean, are going to hurt so badly coming out of this. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of chance to rebuild and there'll be a lot of appetite for it. That was a pun intended, appetite. <laughs> but, the, but there'll be a lot of appetite from consumers for it. So, so look, maybe we have, maybe we have some benefit here in, in New York city, outdoor dining is going to be permanent. It took them hundreds of years to get to outdoor dining in Europe and we just skipped ahead. So, so like, so with all of this, like what is that opportunity? That's SMB. The other part of local that is very interesting is local experiential. 
what is gathering going to look like post? We know people are going to go back to concerts. We know people are going to go back to bars. We know people are going to go back to movies. I mean, I am very, very close and very biased to, to one that I'm, how are people going to, like, I think movie going will be a giant business post COVID, but the theaters won't look like they did in the past, right? How are you going to get to mixed use spaces being used to exhibit a movie so people can gather around it, right? Both because of what's happening with Tribeca and what Christie's company is story spaces. Like that is fascinating to me. So if you find things that are, how are people, people are going to want to gather, there's going to be consumer demand for it, but it won't look like it did pre COVID like retail. People will want to go to, so, you know, for everyone who thinks retail is dead, you know, the, the overused, but absolutely on the nose example is Apple. Like they sold everything direct and now you can't, I mean, Apple stores, there's lines around the corner everywhere for them. So don't tell me that like, like I, I like that example, by the way, Apple, Google, Amazon, physical, physical locations coming just about everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. I use that same example in, in advertising when people are like, especially startups and tech people who are like, oh, billboards, that's so dumb. I'm like, you know, who the biggest buyers of billboards are tech companies. The number one, I mean, it's the top and television too. top categories, Apple, Amazon, Google. So, so if you don't think they don't know what they're doing when it comes to advertising, you're out of your mind. It's the same thing with retail. So that means it will be there, but Apple can do that. Like, like they have the resources and design to do it, but what will that be for all small businesses? Any, anyone who's doing retail, changing to an experiential, like mixed use space is a big deal. Yeah. And, and is that what you mean? Or what do you mean when you, when you talk about virtual local or, or virtual gatherings? So then virtual gatherings is, so uh, this is more on the gaming side and, or like, look, we always over index every time a virtual world comes in, we always say, this is it. We made it second life. Like we could probably find half of half of the articles that are being written today. Now, the difference today is, you know, the, the, the Epic and kind of the unreal engine behind it, meaning multiple people are building gaming environments. And, and, and I think obviously Matt Ball has some of the best stuff on this, but can you make kind of, virtual gathering kind of meet an IRL experience later um, because it, I think things either have to pay off IRL otherwise over time the value becomes diminished because you're either you're going to sequester yourself fully and isolate which during the pandemic we have to again back to like like indicators that are a little too strong right now but in a post-pandemic world you're going to want to mix your digital interfaces to kind of pay off in your real world relationships somehow and so what will those look like and so I'm thinking a lot about what that is. Let's get back to the future of work uh, and, and you this concept of the, of the new purpose economy. Mm-hmm. Why don't you unpack both of those ideas? All right. So, so the purpose economy one is one that I love, 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 love. And I haven't really, uh, I haven't found a thread in terms of what makes the business model for it. But, you know, if you if you believe that we're in a place where you keep seeing uh, an increase in, in disparity of, of, you know, the wealthy and, and the haves and have nots, right? We're going to get to a place where we're going to have automated, we're going to have trucks that can drive themselves. That's a huge, huge portion of jobs and labor in the economy. Restaurants are going to become more efficient uh, in so many ways. Like you've, you've, you've got tellers at, you know, CVSs and, and other, you know, convenience stores that don't need to have um, people standing there. So all of a sudden, our, but our economy will be just as efficient as it always was. Actually, it'll be more efficient. We'll produce plenty of food to eat. We'll produce plenty of housing. We'll produce all these things. And, you know, I'm actually I personally am a fan of a UBI. Like, I, I think I think that, that something you know, along the lines of a UBI, but I think you need more than that. And I think that there's this purpose economy. So the same way I think in attention, only the things that can get measured are being valued. 
like we all know that childcare is valuable to the economy, but it's not paid for out of the economy. Coaching in your local little league is valuable to the to the community, but it's not paid for. Civic participation is valuable to the community, but not paid for. Spending time at nursing homes and with the elderly is valuable to the community and the economy, but not paid for. So if you could take everything in the economy that is valuable but not paid for and put put metrics to it, put numbers to it, I've thought about, you know, kind of a serendipitous karma, kind of like a four square for doing good deeds that just pops up on a map. And they, there's something to the, this idea of a purpose economy. And, and there's two reasons why I am so bullish on this as a giant concept is three. One, I think the work Michael Tubbs did in Stockton kind of um, uh, uh, putting out the flagship program for what does UBI look like, what's possible, how this is possible at scale. The other is Team Rubicon, which is run by a, a former Marine named Jake Wood, and this idea of retraining vets who have an amazing skill set to work in disaster relief. And while, yes, it's great that they're helping in disaster relief, it's also just given a bunch of purpose and community and connection of human beings in this. So you look at these things at scale and you say, you know who would be a great client over the next 10 years? Governments, because they literally print money. And so if you said, I want to help build a system, a kind of a new teach for America, a new kind of a new, a new, this idea of, of value properly valuing and rewarding the purpose economy and tying that to a UBI. That's my, like, so, so, someone show me how they're going to go do that. And I'm, I'm all in. I, I love that idea. I'm, I'm going to be, be, be noodling on, on that one. And, and then how about in terms of um, just the future of, of, of work as it relates to uh, distributed companies or how, how you see that playing out? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people can talk a lot smarter, but like I said, I think that we're, we're over-indexing now for how easy it will be to be distributed. But that means that talent could be anywhere. And so, you know, I, I really started my career back in, in 2000 at, at monster.com and like the job boards. And job boards are really just advertising, trying to match labor and, and employment, right? And and you see the modern ones today, like if you think about the Muse um, run by Catherine Minshew, or you think about like what LinkedIn has done for passive employment, it's like it's gotten more efficient with the labor market. But if all of a sudden you said, okay, well, now more people can work in more places. Do we have the job boards of the future for small? Like, how does a small business take advantage of that? I know how a big business takes advantage of it. I know how Microsoft can outsource to Africa, like like development, but I don't know how you know, a SMB down the block or a startup or like is like which jobs are truly going to become remote. And then, you know, how are they going to support remote workers? How do you replace the things, everything that a job really is? So back to why collisions are so important. Your job isn't just your where you go to sit behind a computer for eight hours. I hope like your job is where you go to talk to people about Game of Thrones that aren't your family, right? Your job is like where you, where you make social connections and friends. And, and so all of that, gone in a distributed world so how do you rebuild that right like you know ironically it's the is, is the we workification but like mixed settings versus your own office like but then did they have culture even though they're not they're their own company like like does does a location have culture even though you all work at different companies like what's the you know people people over drinks talk about their jobs so so people who can figure out how to replace or supplement what used to come out of your job that wasn't just doing your job and cranking on widgets for eight hours. The, the, uh, that's a good segue to the future of connection. Um, 
how do you how do you see the, see that playing out, or, or where are you excited there? Yeah, it's it's in that vein, which is I think so much of our connection with other people came from where we worked, right? It's 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 who your friends were, um, how you you know connected with met over social, and so like how you interacted with people was heavily IRL almost first, right? And yes, you could meet people distributedly, and you'd have it you'd have a virtual relationship, however that is, but Again, there was always an IRL payoff. And then at that level, you could go deeper in the future, you know, especially in a post-COVID world, as we kind of go back to a rebalancing, what 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 will that be? You know, I think that the ones that have had the the biggest gains in this last uh during all the pandemic is you see a lot of the fitness, right? But the fitness apps aren't just fitness. Like if you think about Peloton, Peloton is is hardware meets content meets community, right? And so purpose-built hardware. So anyone can, can say, oh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's an iPad screen and a bike, but it's not because it does just that. There's no risk that it's going to not work for exactly what it's purpose-built for. It's designed your tonal uh, mirror, like same thing. Purpose-built hardware meets the content that's on it, and you begin to build a community around it. So will we have that for concerts? Like, I'm sure you've tried to do it. I know I have like, and like during the pandemic, like, okay, let's all watch a concert with our friends and you've got a zoom set up. And then you're looking at the screen that's on the far wall and the sound isn't just right. And everyone needs to, that's not right. So, so I'm going to build purpose-built hardware so that we can be more communal around group events. Uh, I, I'd be interested a portal started to go down that way. Right. Um, and if that's the 1.0, where does that go? What's the Peloton for, for social connection? If, you know, I've spoken to some people who are working on big products in the dating side. Like they, they, they say that, you know, the dates right now are you're holding your phone in front of your face, but like, like that's not how you'd want to sit. If you were sitting with someone and having a conversation, there'd be an atmosphere around you that you could talk about. There would be music that would play on both sides. Like all of those things, which are, which would require almost purpose-built kind of thinking, yeah. not just repurposing a laptop, uh, a laptop camera or a phone camera. Uh, and people are hacking it now. Like they'll set up a, a ring light and they'll set up a, well, the phone will be here so they can sit on their couch. And, but like someone's going to say, okay, all the stuff you've been hacking, we're going to make a real product for, uh, and make yeah. it better. It, by the way, uh, you mentioned biggest gains. You're, you're on fire with the puns today. I have to. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man. Oh, that okay. I'm retroactively making that one intentional. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's funny. I, I thought when you said biggest gains, I thought you were going to say, uh, only fans just because that is absolutely taken yeah. off. It just, what? Yeah. Well, that goes that goes to the, the this category of creators, right? Like, yeah. like this this um, this idea that monetization of following, but you don't need to have it. Like, so all of the internet was based on accumulation of like vanity metrics. They weren't necessarily meaningful. Like most impressions, most, I, I I reach one trillion impressions a day. I don't even know what that means, right? Like I you know I reach every every ad network reaches you know ninety percent of the U.S. population. That weird. I don't know how, but like they do. But like, can you make it like, can you make a cottage industry and say, no, you don't want to get to scale. You actually want to be, you want to have like a hundred fans. And is that, can you make a viable business out of a hundred or a thousand fans? And that seems to be what OnlyFans kind of shown. And it's been proven out time and again, uh, adult content gets there first on the internet in terms of what makes, what makes money. And then the rest of us figure it out yeah. later. To uh, maybe in a, a segue a little bit, T talk about your theory of, of booze, banks, yeah. and, and other regulatory moat businesses. Yeah, so this is this is this is new and interesting. But like, so I've been spending a lot of my time uh, with a tequila company, uh, and I basically I'm it, I, 
partnered with this CEO and founder who's been a friend of mine for years. And, and we started building and I mean, literally a distillery in Mexico and import license and taxing. And in the U S you have a three tier rule, which means there's no such thing as real D to C like, like what looks like D to C is still going through the three tiers, right? You, you get it in, into an importer, goes to a distributor, the distributor goes to a retailer and then it can go to a consumer. Right. Um, and all of this is so, it looks so painful from the outside. And yet you realize that that's a built-in regulatory boat that once you've figured it out and you're on the other side, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room to run. And if you're seeing it in fintech right now, I mean, you just saw it with, with, with the massive round that current just did, you know, we were there from the very beginning, uh, watching Stuart, like build a bank and like building a bank is expensive and very hard and highly regulated. Right. But once you're on the other side of building it on the rails, Right. Instead of thinking, you know, you, oh, well, this is easy. It'll be a wild, wild west. We'll just be a direct to consumer. No, you build a bank, you do the hard work and you're on the other side of the regulatory moat. Now, what's the best product for the consumer? How quickly can we iterate on the brand? How do we market? And I think the same thing in alcohol. I think so. I've actually I've kind of come. I've done a 180 on what I think about regulatory based businesses. Now I want to find people who are want to take it on, but actually have the ability to do it. And it is capital intensive to, to get there. But if you believe they can get to the other side, then they can truly differentiate versus like most things in D2C, you know, not most, because actually manufacturing a decent product is always hard to do. That could be your moat. But most things where it's like, oh, anyone can pick up a pick up a laptop and buy some Facebook ads and they're in this business. That's that's like I think that's a bad place to be. Yeah. So, so fintech, healthcare, education. Yeah. I mean, look, I, healthcare, I'd love to see someone do more with it. I, I, I haven't gotten anywhere near it other than, you know, some, some companies that, that human found some amazing founders that know it because it's one of those things I want to see it get fixed. And yet I don't know what I don't know. And, and I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with that. But like once they're, once, once you're on the other side of the regulatory, so the one Paloma, which was dealing with hypothyroidism, like, once they figured out, okay, this is how doctors can treat people um, uh, with, through telepresence. This is what's allowed. This is a, then it becomes, okay, now it's marketing and product. And we're all good at marketing and product. Like, that's why I get nervous when people pitch a deck and it looks beautiful, but they don't know how the, how the guts of it have to work. Totally. And, and then during first closing here, the, the, the future of commerce, of course, we've talked a bit about. Is there anything we, we haven't talked about there that you're excited about? Is it sort of, you know, wire cutter for X? If I was to do the TLDR, what were you excited about? Yeah, yes, I think that's true. I think if we see people post-pandemic start to pull back on how much they spend on experiences versus how much they spend on things, how they trust brands. So I think, you know, the same thing is happening in multiple industries, in, in entertainment and in products. It's amazing how similar it is. The barbell, meaning there used to be a, a spectrum of quality of goods, right? Um, now there is commoditized goods that you're just acquiring the customer one time, like you, the, all the affiliate marketers, you know, the lowest, you know, these the lowest costs, whatever it is to get to the, and then the highest are winning LVMH, right? Like, like the, like the quality matters, the brand is Nike, uh, Patagonia, like, all right. And the middle is just going away, right? It's the same thing in content, right? I'm either watching you know, uh, HBO or I'm watching FX, I'm watching the Americans, I'm watching Fargo, or I'm watching TikToks that cost nothing. And the middle is gone, right? And so I think that consumers will be able to pare down to things that matter most to them. They'll, they'll pay up for brands that they trust. And, and the reason why brand matters is 
brand is the promise of what you experienced last time with the company. It's the same thing you'll experience this time, right? You know, when Samsung got all the flack because the phone, the battery issue, well, that why was that a big deal? Well, because of Samsung and they're going to make more phones in the future and they had to earn consumers trust and they better fix it and they better do this. If that was just brand X commodity Y and it just disappeared, like no one would have been held responsible for that. Right. So consumers will pay up for brands because there's this idea in philosophy that's always been one of my favorite saying this idea of object permanence it's like you know when, when you cover a baby's eyes and you shut and then you show yourself that's peekaboo like they're, because like they, they don't know that you're still there brands are object permanent it will be there six months from now it'll be there a year from now i can trust the ingredients i can trust the product and then everything else will be a commodity that i will reacquire through the customer and eventually uh, through the platforms call it facebook google whomever and the margin on commodities trends towards zero that's just that's the way it works yeah that's a, that's, a, that's a great place to wrap. My guest today has been Joe Marchese of Attention Capital. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. You got it, man. I'll, I'll send you some tequila. Amazing. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.